Hello, beautiful people. Okay. Today's um, passage comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 25. Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and you are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Don't be conformed to your former desires, those that have shaped you when you were ignorant, but as obedient children, you must be holy in every aspect of your lives, just as the one who called you is holy. It is written, you will be holy because I am holy. Since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, you should conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. Live in this way, knowing that you were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was only revealed at the end of time. This was done for you who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and give him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. As you set yourselves apart from your obedience to the truth so that you might have genuine affection for your fellow believers, love each other deeply and earnestly. Do this because you have been given new birth, not from the type of seed that decays, but from the seed that does not. This seed is God's life-giving and enduring word. Thus, all human life on earth is like grass, and all human glory is like a flower in a field. The grass dries up, and its flower falls off, but the Lord's word endures forever. This is the word that was proclaimed to you as good news. Good morning. My name is Colton Lott. I am the student pastor of this beautiful congregation. And would you pray with me? Holy God, work in and through me. Though I have brittle bones, may they be resilient enough to have me stand. Though I have a wet tongue, may it be dry enough to be put on fire by your spirit. Though I have enough in this room, and that's all I'll say about that. God, on this first Sunday of Black History Month, I particularly give thanks for those ancestors that have gone before, especially in this time, uh, the preachers and prophets and pastors who helped redeem the soul of the church and are working even through life and death for the soul of this country and for those in this congregation who are making history. Amen. So last Saturday night, I was making dinner when the phone rang, and I was pulling out a pot for the lima beans, and I answered the phone angrily. Hello, I, I said, thinking it was my grandmother for the third time that day, because she has problems. <laughs> Hi, Colton, it's Wamika. Is this a bad time? Oh, Wamika, of course not. 
I stated as I had the makings of mini meatloafs with snappy sauce and a can of lima beans opened on the counter. What's up? I had an idea of what was up because uh, I was Wamika's first friend when she moved to Ada, Oklahoma when she was 13, one of one or two of those first friends. And she is one of the one or two, three and a good year people from high school that I still keep up with and try to find out what's going on in their lives. She's important to me because she's my first friend who wasn't a Christian. Uh, because believe it or not, folks who aren't some flavor of Christian are kind of uh, rare in Ada, Oklahoma. And of course, I knew what was up because we had texted some that day when Wamika sent me a message out of the blue asking, what is wrong with our country? And apparently, whatever I had said to that text message wasn't sufficient because she called me and asked me again, Colton, what's wrong with our country? Wamika's also the daughter of immigrants from India. She's a practicing Hindu. And she's lived in Oklahoma for a long time now. And she moved there from Mississippi, and she was born in North Carolina. And so I would have thought if anybody would have figured out what was going on, it might be Wamika. And so trying to answer in the most pithily way I could, I said, well, Wamika, I think we're seeing the backlash of some pretty racist parts of our country. But Colton, I thought things were supposed to be getting better. Is all the progress we gained under President Obama going to be just wiped out? And as I was kneading my meatloaf with the phone cradled between my ear and my shoulder, I realized that Wamika was actually really, truly, deeply shocked by what was happening. This wasn't mock outrage. She wasn't calling me just to shoot the breeze. She was scared. She was angry. Because she really believed that refugees and immigrants and people of color and individuals like her parents who didn't speak English as their first language and families who didn't worship Jesus would still be accepted as full parts of our society in this nation, or at the very least, respected by the government. In our text for today, we see the author of 1 Peter uh, who we're going to call Peter, I'm going to call him Peter, even though it's probably not the hand of like the Peter you read in the Gospels, but that's okay. Is written this letter, it's a letter, and it's written to a bunch of churches. And these churches are having an experience that's not especially different than what Wamika's going through, and by extension what I'm going through, and probably you too. And so it's hard to date this letter. I mean, we can get it close in the grand scheme of things, but like exact, it's kind of hard. We can tell from the words themselves that it's written during a time of flux and anxiety and alienation on all fronts. The white space on the page is the fear that the black letters are standing on top of. And the recipients in Asia Minor had good reason to feel this way. On the religious side of things, you had this group that were, was trying to form a new way of being and seeing in the world, a, a new religion, although they wouldn't really call it, use that term. They were non-Jewish people suddenly adopting enough Judaism to proclaim that God had come to humankind in a radical way, also known as Jesus. Or they might have been Jewish people who were trying to live into this new way of Jesus too and proclaim the Messiah had come despite 
however unlikely that might be, as Paul did. But no matter the scenario, they weren't well accepted by who they came from or who they were trying to become. And they were kind of distressed on all sides because they looked a little, their, their, their religious beliefs were a little funny, you see. They were in-betweeners. Over on the governmental side of things, well, it was a mess. You had this reign of Nero, and there were coups and takeovers, and so there's like this year of three emperors. And then the Romans had this nasty habit of promoting emperors who had a hand in the Jewish-Roman war, which brought about the destruction of the temple. And so no matter what kind of relationship Jesus had with the temple in Jerusalem, this is the loss of a heartbeat of an entire people which is incomparable in some ways to our situation because we don't have the same fusion of everything, of people, religion, and governance in this way. But what you need to know is they were estranged from their heritage and the fact that the government had this way of picking folks who led the charge of destruction to be the head of the state. Inevitably, it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, and if you're like me, you're already making several analogies in your head. The parallels between then and now, them and us, are great, aren't they? You might say scarily so, or beautifully so, depending on your basic theology or fear level at this time. But Peter kicks it off this way today. Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and you are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I'm not evangelical, but I've been around the block long enough to know that if there is a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And if you remember all the way back to January 1st, Pastor Emily preached to us at the one UVC New Year's Day service on this first part of 1 Peter, the verses 1 through 12, and reminding us that even though we're a church of the unlikelies, we're still called and loved by Christ. This good news of the gospel, that's our good news, no matter how unlikely it might seem. Like our ancestors in faith, like Jacob and David and Solomon and Ruth and Rahab and Mary and even Jesus, despite being a whole bunch of second-place finishers, they are full children, we are full children of the Creator. That lineage includes you. Kind of do your hands like this because I want you to know that. That's, that's, you can't, we can't go forward till we get that. You are loved and to, you are to be born again. You're born from above and you're born from again. And as Emily said last week, to be woke again, again, and again. And the reason it's important to know that is because there's no magical other church that has some special grace or some special salvation, or some special prayer, or some special ritual that makes them more of a God-loved, Jesus-following, spirit-filled church than we are. We're all a part of the one church of Jesus the Christ, whether we want to be or not sometimes. And so once we've accepted this fullness, our acceptance, our fullness, Peter then says, make sure your minds are thinking clearly and you're ready for action. Once we've accepted all of that stuff, then we have to organize our potential together. 
And so since the beginning of the church, from Jesus and Galilee all the way up to now, we've been forming and reforming so that the church can be the church, so the church can love each other, so the church can love the world in whatever container the church finds itself in. Over and over again. Every time someone new joins this community, we know this as we kind of shuffle around to make room and love and grace for everyone, right? In the past, this congregation has done this work. This congregation is currently doing that work. And it will be doing that work. So, like, to guide this thinking clearly, we have a mission statement. Sounds kind of hokey, but it works. If you flip your worship guide over... Urban Village Church exists to create Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city. Each word of this mission statement conceals and reveals in multitudes. Create, about church planting, Jesus-loving, all that discipleship talk and the work that we do, those continuing spiritual practices. Inclusive, our dedication to becoming a church without walls so that all people can access the church, this church, especially those who are people of color or who are queer. And Ignite the City references the end goal, that through the many resources that come together to help plan a community of faith, that ceaselessly taking up the hard work of Jesus, the sometimes very deep and sometimes painful work that, it com that comes with being genuinely inclusive, we can ignite the city for service and justice so that all may know that they are a child of God and will be treated that way, so that the grace, the hope, excuse me, the hope that we have in the grace, the ability to love one another as Christ has loved us, that can become manifest, can be real, even in this city. So if you're following the needle I've been threading, I've now told you, like Glinda to Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, that you're called by God and thus you've had everything you've needed all along. Just tap your heels three times. And I've now told you that our vision for what God is calling the church is so, imagine, is so expansive it can scarcely be imagined. And so maybe it's unbelievable and foolish, but despite its grandness, this mission that we have is a clear stream of thought to ignite the city for service and justice. But how will we ready ourselves for the action and if you've been around for a while, which now includes this morning, you've heard about this fabled organizational restructure and this transformation task force and our church-wide racism audit, anti-racism audit. We've put our time and our effort and some money and our hope into these endeavors, and we're going to hear about those dividends today and next week because they're important These are unsure and anxious times. And that's why my friend Wamika called me. That's why my relatively well-insulated grandmother feels fearful and checks MSN every morning to see what foreign policy got hashed out over Twitter. To be adding the extra discomfort of this new way of doing church and simultaneously digging deeper into our own lives together to uncover levels of oppression that exist, even in this church, means that we're juggling a lot of balls at once. Because it's not just about us, it's about all of the people that we are accountable to in this community, all these people that we are trying to be ambassadors of God's welcome to. And that seems overwhelming to me. 
And as someone who's a more recent addition to the life of this community, that just sounds like a lot. But, and this is hard for someone like me to remember, my liberation was never going to be found in the empire, even when I liked the emperor. And I realize now that I got suckered into thinking that government was going to save people, and it's not. Jesus will, and maybe we can help in that process. But silver or gold or oval offices or executive orders will not bring about God's way of living together. Only the church can, and only if we think clearly and are ready for action. Despite the uncertainty, despite the fear of this time, taking the time to better equip ourselves is a worthy task. Taking time to being a better church is a necessity. If we're going to be effective in our world, even our neighborhoods, then Peter's clear. We have to ready ourselves. Now, I'm also conscious of something else, and something really important. In my own ears, I sound like another white guy who's just talking about empire and salvation, and generally speaking, I really dislike when people like me give sermons like this one. And on this first Sunday, uh, to help rectify that, of Black History Month, I joined the president in remembering Frederick Douglass. I break from the president and remembering that Frederick Douglass died in 1895, <laughs> but wrote in his 1845 autobiography, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libel. And it is easy, particularly for individuals like me, to think clearly and be ready for action and still get the Christianity of white America and not get the Christianity of Christ. And that's why we, remember how I said we're all part of this one big church of Jesus Christ together? That's why we have so many sibling churches that will not say that black lives matter. And this failure of morality has and will continue to permeate the well of Christianity and poison the waters for all who try to drink from it. Which is why what we do here in this space is so vital for the religion that we claim to be a part of as a reformation within the reformation. And to do that, Peter tells us what's at stake. It's being holy, like God is holy. I don't think so much because Peter has a perfection complex, as much as anything less than this holiness is going to hurt people. Holiness here, I don't think, means uh, you got an A-plus on your paper, as much as it means set apart, unlike any other strange Unless the, wor the church is unlike the rest of the world, the world that requires that some people suppress their identities, the world that says nine out of ten is good enough, the world that is comfortable with sacrificing the well-being of some in favor of the comfort of many, then the church will not be able to show that world the awesome power of Christ the liberator. Indeed, anything less than holiness will be evil actions that God will judge without partiality no matter how good we claim to be when we do it. As Mr. Douglas again reminds us, those who profess to favor freedom yet 
depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. To be honest, I don't know how UVC HP Dub exists most of the time. I walk into this church on a Sunday morning to see a place where no two people are alike, where there are so many intersections of identity and something we don't always talk about, intersections of belief. We come from really different versions of Christianity. And I know earlier that I waxed on about the one church of Jesus Christ, because that's important to me. That's part of my stream of Christianity. But that church has a whole lot of personalities. The fact that we function at all is a minor miracle. And it points to something bigger than ourselves. But for us to continue to welcome the Holy Spirit into this place will continue to require us to unpack our hurts, to tell us to each other about our triumphs, to live lives with other people, some of whom we've been trained not to trust. It's not going to be like any other human enterprise we know. But in our understanding, in our undertaking, in our labor, we might model that holiness of God. We might be able to put our hope in the grace of Jesus the Christ. It probably won't be comfortable, but it might be holy. As I was reapplying snappy sauce to my mini meatloafs, I pulled them out of the oven and was putting it on with a little tablespoon. And then I was putting butter into lima beans. Wamika asked me what to do. And I considered her question, and I answered in different ways. But the most important thing I had to offer her is what I'm going to offer you. You're part of a very old tradition that has faced insurmountable odds before, many times over. You're not the first. And you may not be the last. And in this passage that we read, Peter borrows from Isaiah, which, by the way, is the same Isaiah that I preached from last time. And it reminds us of the radical hope of Christ in that first Sunday of Advent. That's when I preached it. But human life is like grass. The grass dries up, the flowers fall off, and the Lord's word endures forever. Peter, though, has made a riff. You're not part of that seed anymore. You're part of God's crop, God's strain. And I want you to take your hands. I want you to wave your fingers. Now, I see you're doing this, doing like this, because you need to link in with somebody now. Slurp in together. Is everyone hooked in? Will somebody hook with Emily? Oh, but yeah. Now... I cut grass when I was a teenager for pocket money. And so if there's anything that I know is that it could be a fool's errand to try, you can stop, to try and eradicate grass from a lawn. Once it's rooted in, it's there to stay. And if God gives us radical hope, then Christ should give us radical courage. 
Because when we're thinking clearly, when we're ready for action, when we check ourselves by aligning ourselves to God's holiness and not our own, our flowers might fall off. Somebody might be picking them off, but we won't go away. The church has never died. But like Jesus has resurrected again and again into new context, into new times of anxiety, in new times of fear and hope, to proclaim a grace and a love that surpasses any other. We are a part of that story of rebirth. Amen.